Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we left off on verse 11. We're going to look at two verses this morning, verses 11 and 12, as we're working through the letter of James. If you don't have a Bible, as always, please use one of the ones you can find in the rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We're going to receive communion here in just a moment at the end of this time in the Word where we're going to, as a church family, come around the Lord's table And I pray that our our singing, our praying, our reading of Scripture, and even the preaching of God's Word would help prepare our hearts to come around the table and remember the most important thing in the world, in the universe, what God has done to reconcile a people to Himself through the work of His Son. Now, we're going to look at two verses this morning, but I, I just have this sense that I want to remind us as a church what we do and why we do what we do when we gather. There are believers in other parts of the world, in, in the UAE, in Uganda. In a couple weeks, actually a week from tomorrow, I have the opportunity to go to South Africa, to Gareth's Home Church in Johannesburg, South Africa, where I'm going to speak at a conference. Uh, and I'll go to Uganda again, uh, to Africa again. When I go to Uganda, there'll be believers there that are doing the same thing. I love Africa. In fact, Africa is becoming my second favorite continent right behind California. <laughs> but believers there and all around the world, whether big churches or small churches, whether under trees in the desert or in air-conditioned buildings like this one, all of God's faithful people that are doing what the Bible commands us to do, are doing the same thing that we're doing here this morning, and it's coming not to listen to a show, not to be entertained, not to have our ears tickled, not for our preferences preferences to be massaged or reinforced, but for the people of God in all of their varying levels of growth and maturity and sanctification, going through all the things that they have gone through in that week, good and bad and everything in between, come together to meet God in his word. His word that he has written for us, which is true and inspired by his Holy Spirit, which shows us who he is and who we ought to be. That's the great privilege we have to do, have this morning to meet God in his word. There's nothing spectacular about this. We sing God's word, we pray God's word, and somebody gets up and does his best to try and explain God's word, and then we remember God's word as we receive communion and we leave this place trying to apply God's word. There's nothing spectacular about what we do when we gather. But oh, this is how God sustains his people through the ages. And what a privilege it is to do this. So let's, let's read verses 11 through 12 of James chapter 4. Now, I said earlier on when we went through James, if you've noticed, that James makes a big deal about our speech and our tongues. And he's going in one last time. Verses 11 and 12, he's going he's gonna to deal with us again. So let me read the text and pray, and then we'll get into it. James says this, Do not speak evil. Some verses, some translations say slander. Do not slander. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, help us understand this text. Lord, your word is life. But before your word can bring us life, it must must kill us. 
and resurrect us. So Lord, would you wound us and would you heal us this morning? And would you do and show and make us into beautiful things as a result of you? Would transform us from one degree of glory to another? Prepare us to come to the table. For my brothers and sisters in this room, make us more like your son. You've promised to do it. Make this morning part of the fulfillment of your promise that you will make us like Jesus. And for my friends that may be gathered here this morning, certainly there are some in in a group this size that do not truly know you, I pray that you, by your kindness, would open up their eyes. That you'd give them an understanding of their natural state before you, which is to be separated in their sin, hostile to you. And that they, like all of us, need to be reconciled to you. And the only way that can happen is not by their effort or not by their desire to make themselves cleaner or better, but the only way that can happen is through them receiving and understanding and trusting in your son Jesus' life, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. It's the only hope that anybody in this room has. And if there's anybody here that's not trusted in that finished work of your son, Lord, give them the very thing that you command of them, which is faith. Faith in Christ. They can't bring that to the table. They're in an an impossible predicament. You require of them something that they do not have and they cannot produce. And so, Lord, Lord, give it to them. Give them faith. Give them a new heart. And those of us that already have new hearts... Lord, mature those hearts, make them stronger in Christ by your word and your spirit that delights to work with the word that it is written. In Jesus' name, amen. James, as I've said, has been, has been zeroing in on our tongues. Go back to chapter one, look at verse 19, just to give you a sense of the setup of where we are. This is, this is sort of the end bracket of James's emphasis on our tongues. And he says in verse 19 of, of the first chapter, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Down in verse 26, he, he, he gets at the tongue again. He says in chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but de- deceives his heart, this person's religious, religion is worthless. So if you can't tame your tongue, what you confess about what you believe, James is saying, means nothing. And then chapter 3, I think it would benefit us to, to read that, those few paragraphs again on the tongue. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Not many of you should become teachers, not my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. Is set among, the tongue is set among our members No, the tongue is a fire, verse 6, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, We curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? 
or a grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In our text again, let's read it again, verse 11 and 12 of James 4, the end bracket on his emphasis on speech, which has been woven throughout this whole letter. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, I want to ask three questions to help us understand this text. I want us to think about three questions. First, what is this passage saying to us? Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, what is this passage saying to us? What is this passage not saying to us? And then thirdly, why is this so important? First, what is this passage saying to us? It's saying, clearly, I think it's rather straightforward. Again, some of the parts of the Bible are hard to understand. I don't think this is one of them. It's rather straightforward. He's saying, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He's talking about, he's talking to Christians in the local church, and he's talking about how we speak about one another. He's saying, do not, many translations say, slander. Here in the ESV, speak evil. Do not slander one another. What is slander? Let's make sure we understand what slander is before we we seek to think about it in our own lives. Here's a definition of slandering. It is to speak critically of another person with the intent to hurt. It's to speak critically of another person with the intent, this is important, with the intent to hurt. Now here's the thing about slander. It can be saying not just untrue things, but also true things. Slander can be filled with facts but it is stating those facts in a critical way with the intent to hurt that person. It is cutting someone down and almost always with the intent to prop ourselves up. Cutting someone down with the intent of propping ourselves up, making less of someone else for the purpose of making much of ourselves, speaking critically, whether true or untrue, with the intent to hurt. There's two great, great truths that I think go along with what we must just sort of confess about slandering. And it is this. It is almost all of us do it. Almost all of us do it. And secondly, almost none of us actually think we do. Almost all of us do it. And almost none of us actually think we do. Slander slowly kills. Think about the context of a local church. Slander slowly kills us and the people around us. (laughs) This week as I was preparing this message, I just happened to turn on the radio to this wonderful old Motown classic. I think it was Motown, Roberta Flack, killing me softly with his song. It's a a wonderful song, by the way. And I thought, man, that we could rewrite that. We, We kill each other softly and slowly with words. That's what slander does. Slander almost always happens in private conversations and behind closed doors. It's wicked and dangerous because it dwells in darkness. And because we are experienced slanderers, We know how to dress up slander. We are experts at putting lipstick on the pig of slander. It is one of the more respectable sins. There's a book, in fact, called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges, a wonderful Bible teacher who passed away a few years ago. It's a convicting, convicting book. Slander happens most often in the home. Slander, when parents slander people in their community, in their church, in their family, slander shapes and molds and disciples children. Slander poisons our spouse. Slander saps us of our spiritual vitality. 
Slander happens in whispering conversations over coffee. Slander's voice is almost never raised. It's always under the breath. Slander causes us to form unholy alliances because we instinctively know that what we've said can't be shared publicly with the person that we're talking about. So now we have to watch what we say around other people, especially the person that we have slandered somebody to, to somebody else. And now we have to exert the mental energy to give one another the look that what I said earlier, let's not bring that up. Slander slowly saps us of our spiritual energy and vitality and freedom. Slander is cowardly. It's never brave enough to just come out and say what needs to be said. It's almost always cloaked, and here's how we dress it up. It's almost always cloaked and subtly sandwiched between fake compliments and qualifications. You know so-and-so. I mean, he's a great guy. I love him. I love him. Bless his heart or her heart. You know, in the South, right after that, you know what's coming. But because I dressed it up, it's now socially acceptable, oftentimes in the church. He's a great guy, and I love him. I love him, man. I love him. But man, when he starts talking in community group, I want to stick a fork in my eye. I just wish he would shut up. He is so oblivious. Do you think his wife notices? But I love him, man. I love him. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Think about the types of people that we are especially prone to slander. I thought about it in two categories in my own life. First, is people that we consider peers who we are threatened by maybe who have achieved something that we covet. And we live in the age of social media where we can pry into one another's lives, which gives us an opportunity to covet one another, which leads to slandering one another. So the first type of person we're especially prone to slander is people that we consider to be peers. We rarely slander people that we consider ourselves superior to because there's no reason to slander them because there's no reason to prop ourselves up over them because we already feel like we're over them, which in and of itself is a problem. And when we think that, we need to go back to James 2 where he says, don't prefer the rich person over the person that comes into your meeting with shabby clothes. So we've got all sorts of problems that we categorize people, but the people that we do categorize as peers, we are threatened by. The second type of person that we're prone to slander is authority figures, coaches that don't see our kids' true talent, teachers that give us unpleasant feedback on our children's progress or behavior in school, commanders who don't do things the way we think they should do, first sergeants who are a little rough around the edges, which, by the way, is actually part of being a first sergeant. If you didn't know that, you're supposed to be a little rough around the edges. I've never met a first sergeant who wasn't rough around the edges. Pastors who we feel have neglected us in some way, and instead of talking to them directly about how we have maybe been hurt by their maybe negligence that in itself may be sinful and letting them know we slander them to other people. We, when we slander, so easily kill softly and slowly with our tongues. And here's the effect that slander has on ourselves, on our own lives. Not only does slander destroy out here, but slander destroys in here. Slander will make you, over time, feel sorry for yourself. How does that work? Here's how it works. Slander makes us feel sorry for ourselves because we start to create a reality 
where all of these people around us are so messed up that we start believing the lie that they're the real problem and if they would just be better or do better and if things were just better around me, then I could be all that I was intended to be. So slander creates a kind of culture of self-pity. It greases the skids for us to be able to justify our own sin. We realize everybody else is so messed up, and so we think, and so we slander them, and it greases the skids, skids for us to wallow in our own sin. But notice what James also says about the tongue. He says that our tongues actually have a kind of direct connection with our hearts. And so James, in James chapter 3, he says in verse, what is it, verse 2, he says that if a man, if he's able to bridle his tongue, he is able to bridle his whole body. So here's the thing about slander. It's never an isolated individual sin. If we, are, if we see a person who is slandering, we can be sure that there is many other sins in their lives that are following along with it. And we can be sure of the same thing in our own lives. When we slander, we give evidence that our sanctification is on life support, that our spiritual tank is on empty. And it's not just our tongues that is the problem, it is our hearts. Imagine running a marathon or playing a game, or have some, having some big meeting at work where you have to give some presentation and be on your A game, and getting no sleep the night before. You're sapped of your strength. You're not alert. Your senses are dull. Your nerves are razor thin. You're sluggish. The lack of sleep leads to physical weakness and lack of energy in our total person. That's how slander works spiritually. Slander affects our whole person spiritually. That's what slander is. And at least on a horizontal level, that's what slander does. But this isn't even the real problem so far. The real problem with slander the thing that's even worse about slander, the thing that makes slander so terrible, according to James, is what it does in our relationship with God. Look again at verse, four, at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And listen to James' logic here. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, look at what the consequence is. He says, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So James is saying that yes, you're judging a brother or sister horizontally, you're cutting them down to prop yourself up, but what's ultimately happening is that you are putting yourself in the position of God's law. You are kicking, shoving God out of his seat as the one and the only true one who can issue a verdict on another person's life. And you are, we are, when we slander, kicking God out of his seat. Slander is ultimately not a horizontal fight. It's a vertical coup attempt where we are saying, you know, I know God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. I know he's given us his holy word, which is perfect, which reveals all things. But you know what? Let's set that aside. I've got my opinion on Mary or Johnny. And let me tell you how things really are. That's what slander does. Slander's horribleness isn't so much horizontal as bad as that is as much as it kills but slander makes us treasonous dictators who, try, who charge the palace of God's sovereignty and demand to sit in his seat. That's what slander does. That's what James is saying, that when we slander, 
that's what we do. That's what this passage is saying. What is the passage not saying? Second question, what is the passage not saying? James is not saying that we shouldn't properly and necessarily discern one another's lives and that we shouldn't exercise a kind of watchfulness over one another. He's not saying that we shouldn't confront one another when necessary. Very likely, James had in mind the law of Moses in Leviticus 19, verses 16 through 18, where Moses speaks about slander. Listen to what Leviticus says. Leviticus 19, verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, the law says, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall, listen to this, reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he's not saying that we shouldn't critically speak to one another in a constructive way. What does he say? Don't slander, but there will be times, according to verse 17, where we have to reason frankly with one another. That's part of our responsibility towards one another, is in that sense to judge one another. No, James is not, when he says do not judge one another, he's not saying that we should abdicate our clear biblical responsibility to care for one another, even at times with a severe love. We are in fact commanded to confront, we're commanded to judge one another in that redemptive sort of sense. Listen to what Paul says to Peter. This is one apostle talking to another apostle. And Peter was being hypocritical. He was, he was acting one way around the Gentiles and then another way around the Jewish Christians. And this is what Paul confronts him on. And it makes it into the Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and following. This is Paul speaking. But when Cephas, another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, having pork, bacon, going to Cracker Barrel, extra sausage patties. Come on, let's eat whatever. But when they came, meaning the Jewish Christians, who he thought might you know, consider him a hypocrite, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, meaning those Christians who were still struggling with this idea of whether or not a Christian had to be circumcised. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, listen to this, this is an important phrase. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now that's judgment. But that's redemptive judgment for the sake of the gospel. And that is not slander. Listen to what Paul says in his two letters to Timothy about specific people. He mentions names. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made to you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may, not, they may learn not to blaspheme. So he's calling out Hymenaeus and Alexander, mentioning them. They make it into the Bible because Paul is judging them and the quality of their faith. And this was not slander. This was Paul exercising his responsibility to speak to, as Leviticus says, reason frankly with somebody for their good. What effect did it have on Hymenaeus and Alexander? We're not sure. But think of this, man. I, I mean, I wonder if Hymenaeus and, and, and uh, Alexander are in heaven today. Maybe the Lord used this as a warning to bring them back. We don't know. 
We read in 2 Timothy 4, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Was it the same guy? I don't know. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And I was thinking about, you know, I wonder if Hymenaeus and Alexander are in heaven right now. Someday we'll see him we're like, man, bro, you, you made it in a book, but it wasn't for a good thing, right? <laughs> like, like what? I know, man. I hear they're up there just like enjoying the Lord. Like, yeah, man, I know. It was kind of embarrassing, but, but praise God. If Hymenaeus and Alexander are in heaven today, praise God that Paul didn't slander us behind our back but he called us out because he cared about our soul. Do you see the difference between slander and our responsibility to biblically discern and care for one another? Some might say, well, well, that was Paul. He had an authority as an apostle that we do not have. And I agree with the sense that Paul had an authority that we do not have. We are not apostles. There are no apostles alive today. And if anybody calls himself an apostle, don't just walk from them, run from them. Paul had an apostolic authority along with the other Bible writers that was a one-time in redemptive history authority to deliver the message of Christ to us that we now know is the word of Christ that is speaking to us. But we also read in the Bible, in fact, Jesus' words himself in Matthew chapter 18, where he gives us a similar kind of judging, discerning authority in our own lives. Listen to what Jesus says about the local church and about how we are to live together, how we are to speak. Speak about and towards one another and to one another. Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Don't slander, in other words. Implicit in that is don't talk about him over coffee. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Man, I'm just dawning on me right now as I'm reading this. Do you know how many problems would be solved in the church if we just resolved to try and live that sentence? If your brother sins against you. You know, if you misunderstand what he says, if, if, if something rubbed you the wrong way, maybe it wasn't even a sin, but you need clarification. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Well, who's the church? I think implicit in that, this word church in the Greek language that the New Testament is written in is a word that means ekklesia, is ekklesia, that means the called out. And so Jesus, I think here, is implicitly telling us that there are local churches all around the world who have a kind of formal relationship with one another and that built into the fabric and the responsibility of that local called out assembly of people is this kind of spiritual responsibility that they should take for one another, that they speak to one another in these ways, there's misunderstanding, they go one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't get resolved, take two or three witnesses. And if that doesn't get resolved, you tell it to the church. Who's the church? It's not some universal expression. We can't tell it to everybody. We can't tell it to the believers in India and in Uganda and Haiti and France and Canada. The clear implication is that there's a group of people that every local Christian is in a kind of formal committed relationship with one another where they say, you know, our first two steps to handle this grievance hasn't worked. We think that there's potential serious problems going on here, and so help us solve all this. Help us solve, help us, this local church that I'm a member of, that I'm committed to, that I'm submitted to, help us. And listen to what he says after that. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, this local expression of the body of Christ that we should be committed to, what does Jesus say? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, put him out of the covenant community. Treat him like an outsider. That's Jesus saying, 
judge somebody. That's what Jesus is saying. Truly I say to you, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that, maybe you've heard this verse preached wrongly by some TV preacher who says that we have the power and the authority to sort of loose things and just to speak things into existence. That's not what this text is saying. Think of this text is saying, what do, you, what do you close and open things with? A key. In the, he's saying to the local church that you have a kind of earthly authority that whatever you open and let in to the church, you affirm. And whatever you put out, you, you warn and you judge. And he's saying that membership in the local church should be taken so seriously that we have a kind of earthly representative authority to be the gatekeepers to the people of God. That's what this text is saying. And so we should judge each other in a, in a redemptive, sober-minded, sanctifying kind of way. And he continues and he says, verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now again, this, sometimes this verse is taken out of context. This doesn't just mean that two Christians can, I, I, I want to commend Christians gathering together to pray. No doubt. That's a wonderful truth. And that is true. We can find that in other parts of the Bible. But this verse is not about just two or three Christians gathering together to agree on something on prayer. The context is the authority of the local church and the responsibility of the local church that when we are gathered together in his name, we, we have God's seal to say to somebody, brother, your life is not in accord with the gospel. Turn from your sin, and if you don't, you are at odds with the holy God. That's what this text is saying. So this passage is not saying, it's not saying that we should just sweep things under the rug. It's not saying that we shouldn't discern and be responsible for one another. In fact, we should have great responsibility for one another. But there's a gulf of a difference. There's an ocean of a difference between what Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew 18 that type of speech and the slander that James is condemning in verses 11 and 12. So why is this, why is this so important? Why, we end on this before we come to the table. Why is this so important? Why do we need to understand the difference between slander, which is, has the intent to, to, to tear down and prop ourselves up, and the biblical responsibility to care for one another, protect one another. Why is that so important? Because words, words, the words of a local church, not just the taught words, not just the preached words, not just the sung words, not just the prayed words, but the words in the hallways, throughout the week, in the homes of a local church, create culture. And that culture in a local church can either be life-giving and protective or dangerous and life-destroying. The life, the verbal life, the spoken life of a local church is to be like a plot of soil. And that soil can either be full of good nutrients and water or it can be full of weeds that will choke out and starve a person's soul. We must reason frankly with one another. But even when we reason frankly with one another, the goal, and this is where discernment and right judgment is different from slander, the goal of that type of confrontation and speech is the preservation of life, not the tearing down of life. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 when he's telling the Corinthian church to judge this man who is in this illicit, sinful relationship with his father's wife. Okay, that's how bad it was in the Corinthian church. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4 and 5, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan 
That's a, that's a metaphorical way of saying put him out of the church. You know, what does that mean, deliver him to Satan? It's not like you march to the end of the city limits in Corinth and do some prisoner exchange with Lucifer. You're to deliver this man to Satan. In other words, you're to say to him, we're, we can't be in fellowship with you anymore. And w- but what's the purpose of it? For, for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, for the destroying of whatever's going on in his life that is opposed to God so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Slander wants to go the opposite way. Slander wants to destroy so that we can be lifted up. This wants to, this type of speech that we're called to do is meaning to destroy the sin in one another's life, life so that we can all make it all the way home. That's what's going on here. The local church is to be full of speech, redemptive, protective at times confrontational, hard, awkward speech. And this type of speech is the type of speech that God intends to use to protect his people and to preserve them. We believe in the doctrine of eternal security. I believe that as sure as I'm standing here. There there was many years in my Christian life when I did not have good doctrine and I was always scared of losing my salvation. And then, quite frankly, I started to read my Bible and I understood how erroneous that position was. And I believe in the eternal security of those that God has made alive. You cannot lose your salvation because your salvation is not yours to lose. But how does God, what are the means by which God uses to help you and me preserve and endure to the end? When he saves a person, he doesn't just whack them over the head and then move on to somebody else and say, figure it out for the next 60 years, I'll see you when you get to heaven. No, he preserves a person. We are justified, we will one day be glorified, but in the meantime, we are being sanctified till we get to that place that he has guaranteed that we will get to. And the means by which God uses to keep you and me in the faith is one another. One another, we need each other. And the local church is to be full of the type of speech that builds up, that protects, that reasons frankly, that does not slander, that at time confronts, but always, always brings life. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It's the opposite of slander. Why is this so important? Because the world is watching. They know, especially in a place like America, some places not, maybe even in our city and our culture, we need to preach the gospel. But many people have the basic fundamentals of the gospel. And they're looking at the church to see whether or not the people of God will live what they preach. Why is this so important? Because God intends for the life, for the culture of the local church to be a display, to be an embodiment of the gospel that they preach. We portray or we deny the gospel by how we speak to one another. That's why this is so important. What's at stake here is not just our edification, but it is evangelization. It's whether or not we will be the type of people that God uses to actually draw unbelievers to himself. I don't know many Christians at all that don't want to see conversions, that don't want to see their church grow in gospel healthy ways. But if we say that we want to do that and we are slandering our brother, our sister, we are lying about the gospel that we think everybody needs to accept. And we confuse the world. So some action steps. 
Are you a slanderer? I am. What should you do if you're a slanderer? Think about a person that you know that you've slandered. Go to them and repent this week. I'll let the Holy Spirit give you wisdom on all the details and all the things that need to be filled in the blank there, but repent to somebody that you are prone to slander or have slandered. Parents, repent to your children if you've polluted their ears with slander. Repent if you have established a culture of destructive speech in your home about authority figures, about coaches, about teachers, about pastors. Repent to your spouse about how you have tainted the culture of your marriage with slander. Maybe part of your slander has been speaking poorly of your spouse to a group of friends. So, dear sister, in that play group, don't roll your eyes when you speak of your husband to your friends. Brothers, don't speak sarcastically about your wife to your friends. Don't refer to her as your old lady. It's destructive. It's, it's, not, it's not helpful. It doesn't build up. Speak positively about your spouse to your Christian friends. And all of us have that, listen, all of us finally, all of us have that core group of friends that we just kind of have that, that culture of speech where we can just, you know, maybe the, the thing that kind of knits us all together is that biting, sarcastic sort of tone. Many of us kind of know that sort of group, that little subculture that we're part of. What does this text demand that we do? It demands that we repent, that we change, that we, we confess our sins to those brothers and sisters that we've been slandering with, that we've been growing the drug, the disease of slander in the little greenhouses of the dark places of our conversations, and we repent of that and say we've got to change the culture of our conversation. My friends, why is this ultimately so important? Not just because of how it affects other people, not just because it makes us the judge, not just because it affects evangelism, but ultimately it's so important because slander denies the gospel. Look at James. He says, he says that when we speak evil against a brother, we speak evil against the law and we judge the law. We make ourselves a judge rather than a doer. And then he summarizes. He says in verse 12, look, there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to decide their worth? Who are you to assign them value? This morning, John read in our call to worship from Psalm 103. Listen to what Jesus has done with the sin of the brother or sister that we are slandering. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. When we slander, we are chasing the east or chasing the west, trying to grab a hold of the sin that Jesus has removed. And we are saying, no, 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 no. This one that you've died for, Jesus, this one that you've made new, this one that you are in process of sanctifying, this one that you have guaranteed will stand before you glorified. I've got a few things to say about him or her. They're not quite done yet. Let me tear them down to size. That's what slander does. Jesus bore the wrath of God for that person, for even the true things that we may say about them. Who are we to drudge up the sin that Jesus died for? Here's the good news for a room full of slanderers. Jesus did the same for me and my slander that he does for our brother when we slander them. Jesus on the cross bears the wrath of God for us and our tongues. 
And he says there's only one lawgiver and one judge. And Jesus is able to save. He's able to save to the uttermost, Hebrews says. So who are we to think any differently about our brother or sister? Let's get ready to come to the table now. And let's come to the table knowing that Jesus has died for our brothers and sisters. And he's died for us. So let's come humbly. Let's come with sober judgment. Let's come thankfully. Let's come joyfully that we have a Savior who dies for those we slander and dies for us, the slanderers. Praise be to God, him who is able to save. Fathers, we come to the table. Help us now. We come to the table monthly not to recreate your sacrifice, not to sacrifice you again. You are once and for all sacrificed for our sins. But as your people, as believers in Jesus, we come to remember what you have done, to remind ourselves, to, to clear our heads from the gospel amnesia that we all suffer. And we come to remember that you have taken our sin and you've removed it as far as the east is from the west. By your broken body and your spilled blood, you have made us right. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to thy cross we cling as we come to this table. We come whether we've had a good week or a bad week. We come whether we've been reading our Bible all month or whether we have fallen woefully short on our reading plan. We come filthy, sick, and sore. We come to the table looking up afresh, remembering the gospel again, and we come examining ourselves, repenting afresh. As Luther said, that the Christian life doesn't just begin with repentance, but the whole of the Christian life is repentance. So we come repenting of the residue of sin in our lives, confessing that we have slandered our brothers and sisters, needing a fresh measure of your grace this morning. We come celebrating our right standing before you in Christ. And Lord, we come in Jesus' name. Amen.